to our study of 2 Corinthians. I would uh, project that we have maybe this sermon and one more to finish out the book. So today we look at the latter part of chapter 12 and focus our attention on verse 19. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 19 where Paul says again, Think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. The word excuse is a compound word that has for its prefix apologia, which means a defense. So Paul is saying, do you think that I have written this letter and the first letter for the sole reason to defend ourselves? And the answer to that is no. And then he says, he's speaking before God in Christ. God is his witness in Christ. The reason he is writing, the reason he is rebuking, the reason he is saying these things is for their upbuilding, their edification. Now Paul uses this word throughout the first and second letter, he uses it in other places in the Bible. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, he uses it sort of as a, a purpose statement for the church. He would say, uh, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, the edifice, the structure, is the same Greek word there, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, is growing unto a holy temple to the Lord in whom also ye are being built a holy dwelling place for God through the Spirit. So Paul is saying the edification, the upbuilding of the church is so that we are fitly framed, growing together jointly so that God would dwell with us. But how does Paul say that edification works? On the foundation of Paul's message. Paul's doctrine, Paul's inspired word, Paul's preaching. Paul is defending his ministry for that reason. Because if they depart from Paul, they depart from God. And if they depart from God, what's left of the building? What's left of the edifice? God departs from being a a person that dwells in the church. So Paul, in defending his ministry, is doing it for their spiritual joy and their spiritual happiness, and so that God would continue to come and dwell with them rather than depart from them. Because if we depart from Paul's gospel and Paul's inspired word, we have departed from God. Now that's case closed. You can depart from me and you haven't done that. But you cannot depart from Paul because he wrote most of the New Testament. So I want to title this message, It Was All For You. It Was All For You, Dearly Beloved. Three ways Paul is going to demonstrate it was all for them. And in that way, because he he wrote uh, the Bible... Uh, God inspired it for us. It, it was all for us. Three ways. First, in signs, in service, and in His sorrow. In His signs, in His service for the church at Corinth, and in His sorrow for them. Verse 11. I am become a fool in glory, 
Remember, Paul is boasting. He's simply stating the facts about his ministry and boasting in his weakness while these false apostles, he called them in chapter 11, are boasting in things that are not true and boasting in themselves. So Paul says, I've become a fool in glorying, but you compelled me. You forced me. Why, Paul? For I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing I am behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. You should have commended Paul, he would say to the church. Now, Paul didn't need any commendation or commendation. He said in chapter 3, you remember, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need some letters of commendation from you or for you, like a letter of recommendation? Paul says, you are our epistle, read of all men. Your transformation at the preaching of Paul's gospel is proof enough that you are Paul's commendation, he would say. But the church should have commended Paul to these false apostles. They should have defended Paul, shouldn't they? Beloved, here's a lesson for us. Paul would tell Timothy in his letter to Timothy concerning the church, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses. They that sin rebuke before all. Every church has the right to fire every pastor that she has. No questions asked. It is church authority to do so. But there's a way it shouldn't be done. If you don't have a witness, if you don't have a clear accusation, if there's not some real reason, it shouldn't be done. Just being critical, complaining, not happy, because it's not going as if you would like it to go is not sufficient reason. But every church has the authority to fire her pastors. Now, Paul gives an exception. You, you can't fire Paul. He's direct call from God. But the pastors today, called of God, are recognized by the church. Nobody recognized Paul. Jesus Christ called him directly. But today, the church recognizes the God-called minister, and the church can set aside the God-called ministry. But let it be done in the right way, not by accusation, but by fact. And they should have commended Paul. What would have happened? had they not received the accusation against Paul. Perhaps this letter would not have had to be written. They'd said, where's your proof? All these accusations against Paul. Do not receive an accusation. Don't hear it. Tell them, you go talk to Paul about that, and he'll answer for himself if that's true or false. So they received accusations. They didn't defend Paul when they should have, and now Paul asserts, He is not behind or lacking in the very chief apostles. Whether he's talking about these false apostles who claim their superiority, Paul is going to show he's not inferior to them, or even the apostles from Jerusalem. James, John, Peter, he was not inferior to them in terms of what God called him to be and the gifts that he had, or next, the signs. Verse 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Signs. So Paul is first going to point to the fact that it was all for you because even the signs were for them. The apostolic signs were given to point to something, to authenticate the true apostleship of the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles. Now, these false apostles claim to have signs, but it's doubtful they had any. Or we know that Satan can do mighty signs as well, so maybe they had them from him. But Paul points to the fact that he had 
signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. You remember in Hebrews chapter 2, these signs and wonders were given by God to be a witness concerning the apostles. The writer there would say these words, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which first began to be spoken by the Lord, that is the great salvation, and confirmed by them that heard Him? Now who heard Jesus speak that confirmed what He said about the great salvation? The apostles. God also bearing them, who? The apostles that confirm what Jesus said about salvation, He confirmed them, or He bore witness to them with many signs, deeds, and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. So these signs and wonders and miracles authenticated the apostleship of the true apostles and confirmed what Jesus said about the salvation that they preached and that they wrote about. So Paul is saying when he came to Corinth, those signs were manifest among the people at the church at Corinth. They witnessed those signs which showed that Paul was not inferior to true apostles and certainly not inferior to the genuine or the uh, false apostles that he mentions in this letter. Now what are these things? These three words are not three different kinds of miracles, but three aspects of the miracles that they performed. Signs pointed to something, pointed to the reality of something. Like a sign on the street points you to the exit or points you to the right direction. Signs, miracle signs, pointed to something being genuine or real. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the man sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, go to your house. Well, the problem was he couldn't arise. He was paralyzed. But to demonstrate and point to Jesus as the Messiah, what was the sign? The man got up and he walked to his house. When Paul performed signs, we some of those in the book of Acts, a few are listed there, it pointed to the fact that he was a God-called apostle. Secondly, wonders expresses the idea that it filled people with wonder. The miracles that Jesus did and those performed by the, by the apostles filled them with wonder. Mark chapter 5, Jesus said to the damsel that was dead, Talithakumi, which is to be interpreted, damsel, get up, arise. Well, she's dead. She got up and arose from the dead. And it says they were astonished with great astonishment. They were filled with wonder at the sign or the miracle of Jesus. So wonders here is not a different kind of miracle. It's the expression of awe that filled the people when they saw the signs of Jesus or the signs of the apostles. And then thirdly, mighty deeds is simply the manifestation of God's divine power through them because Paul uses the passive present verb in wrought. They were wrought through him, but he didn't do the wroughting. It was God working through the apostle to perform the miracles. But there's something in this passage that even points more deeply and authenticates Paul's love and that everything he did was all for them. He said, in all patience. Patience or steadfastness. 
And there are two kinds of patience in the Bible. One is to be patient with difficult hardships. And Paul has told us about that. He just kept going. He was steadfast. He persevered with all kinds of difficulties. And he highlighted three or four times in this letter a list of those hardships to authenticate his apostleship. He kept loving these people. But there's another kind of patience in the Bible. It's another Greek word that means patient with difficult people. In some way, it's easier, isn't it, to bear with difficult circumstances than it is to bear with difficult people. Now, you don't have to amen out loud, but isn't that kind of true? You know, just to deal with circumstances, but, but the people, right? Like a person like me, for example. Sometimes that can be downright hard. Just ask my wife. She's not here. She'll probably get wind of this, but I can be a pretty challenging person. Now think about Paul, how challenging this church was for him. Why didn't he just quit? Why didn't he get so frustrated with these people? You ever get just frustrated with people? I teach these people, I preach, I counsel, I preach, Paul could say. Acts 20, he, he taught them publicly, house to house. I go in their house, I go in the next house, I teach, and they don't get it. And Paul just keeps going. Let me tell you three reasons I think Paul, where he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. Three reasons. First, he remembered God was still at work. Beloved, if you can remember that, unless you're ready to write someone off, say, well, God's just not working anymore with that person, then you need to be patient. Look at what he said in the first letter. This is just a reminder for us. He, he remembered this at the beginning of writing the first letter. Uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 1, he said in verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Now, if it was given to them, it was still going. It was still working in them. So right at the beginning, he has a mindset. God is still at work in this church. And as long as God is at work, Paul is going to be patient. Look at verse 7. He says, So that you become behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you until the end. Now if grace started the work, grace is going to end the work. And Paul understands grace is still at work. And so Paul says, it was all for you. His patience. Because he understood that God is faithful, verse 9, by whom you were called under the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And if God called you and God is faithful, Paul is going to stay with it. No matter how difficult the people are, no matter how difficult it gets, he keeps pressing on because God is still at work. Beloved, God is on His own timetable. He's on His own timetable. Aren't you glad He works slow? Or where would we be? (laughs) Which brings us to the second thing. Paul remembered how patient God was with him. And beloved, this is the key. Are you impatient with people? Are you frustrated with your children? Are you frustrated with your husband and wife? Now let's suppose God wasn't so patient with you. I shudder to even think about that. Now, this is not a tack on to God's character at the very heart of who God is in Exodus 34. When He declared His glory to Moses and He passed by Moses and declared the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious. What do you think the next one is? Love, kindness, faithfulness, patient. 
Long-suffering. The third thing God wants you to know about His character, He is long-suffering with you. Now think about Psalm 103 here. I'm going to turn there. Psalm 103 speaks about this concerning God. Verse 8 of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And that, does that describe you with the relationships you're in? Well, just ask your wife, husband, if that describes you. And wives, ask your husband. Are you slow to anger? Are you quick? Tempered? Doesn't take anything to set you off. One, one wrong word spoken. One, one wrong thing done. All of a sudden you angry. Well, God's not like that. Aren't you glad? He's slow to anger. And the reason he's slow to anger is because he's overflowing in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. To deal with something, you use that word, you know, you you deal with something, that means you've got to take action concerning something or someone. Now suppose for a moment, every time you sin, God said, I'm going to take action on that. I'm going to deal with that appropriately according to your sin. One wrong thought. One wrong word. One wrong action. And God is justly, righteously going to deal with your sin. Oh, beloved, if we can but remember the patience of God with us, it's going to have a profound impact on our patience with others. How difficult do you think you are to God? I don't mean difficult like He can't handle you, but just... Using this terminology on the level of of humanly speaking, how difficult are you to God? Paul remembered that. God has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. I'm glad he didn't say as far as the north is from the south because that's a temporal distance, isn't it? But the east is eternally distant from the west because you'll never go west when you start traveling east. It is forever as far. And that's just how far God has removed our sins from us. How can God just remove sin? Because He removed them and placed them on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that He may justly forgive us and take Christ's righteousness and place it on us. The divine exchange through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so now what is God's attitude toward us in verse 13? Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. means to have compassion, to pity. Because He is our Father. He's not just quick to come in, lay down the hammer. He pities us. He pities the sick by giving them comfort. He pities the fallen by helping them up. He pities the the offender by granting forgiveness upon request. Jesus pities 
the broken reed by raising it up again, Isaiah 52. He pities the smoldering embers about to go out by getting on his knees and blowing gently on it to inflame it again. He's slow to anger. He's a father that pities us because he remembers our frame that we are but dust. Now there was a time when God only knew that by observation. But now He knows it by experience. Because Jesus took on our frame and He took on the frailties of our dust-like makeup. And now He knows by experience. The Savior pities us. He loves us. He's patient. He's kind. We understand that and we apply that. It's going to help us be patient with one another. Even when we need to help and exhort one another. There's a kind of patience and compassion that comes that we understand. Growth and change doesn't happen overnight. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you've got to remember this. The servant of the Lord must not strive to be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Preventure God would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, parents, are you patient with your children? Or do you get frustrated so easily? Patience understands growth is slow. And if there's going to be any change, it's not because of the way I said it or the way I trained or the way I did it. It's going to be God granting repentance. And what that does is create a disposition in my soul that's going to help me be patient. Even when I have to correct, to be patient. To be meek. He told Timothy, when you preach, Timothy, preach the word, rebuke. Be instant, in season, out of season. Rebuke, exhort, reproof with what? All long suffering and doctrine. And sometimes we pass over that part. You know. Preach that word. Complete patience. All is total, whole, complete patience. Complete. How do we do that? Remembering God's complete patience with us. And then the last one under this point is remember patience is cultivated. Paul didn't wake up one day and and just have this long-suffering attitude towards difficult people, people that accused him, people that rejected him, people that maligned him, people that slandered him, and yet he just kept going. How do we know he cultivated it? Because of what he wrote to the churches. For example, in Galatians 5.23, he tells us it's a fruit of the Spirit, and fruit must be cultivated. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Relational fruit to God, love, joy, peace, then the first one that goes out to one another is long-suffering. Slow to be offended. Long to suffer with one another. In Colossians 1.11, which this is at the very center of church life, he would say, Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. The word strengthened is a participle. Being strengthened. So being strengthened leads to what? By the Spirit, all patience and longsuffering. Patience with circumstances, longsuffering with people. So how are we being strengthened in verse 11? From verse 10. Increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened. 
How do you cultivate patience and long-suffering? By increasing in the knowledge of God. It's knowing God. It's knowing His patience. It's knowing His love. It's knowing His compassion. A compassion. It's knowing His pity toward us. When we're knowing God and increasing in that knowledge, then what's happening is we're being strengthened in such a way that it's producing in our lives an attitude of long-suffering. Or in the same book, Colossians 3, 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And he starts telling us things to put on. And one of them is long-suffering. Forbearing one another. As opposed to what? Short-suffering. Quick-tempered. Retaliating to one another. How do we put on as the chosen of God, beloved of God, and holy of God, which means He has imputed Christ's holiness to us, and then He's sanctifying or making us holy. How do we put that on? Verse 10, we are renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. Put on therefore. It's the same answer, isn't it? We're being renewed in the knowledge of who Christ is for us. It should start cultivating in our hearts and lives an attitude of patience. Paul says, it was all for you. My defense is all for you. And he demonstrates that in signs and in being steadfast toward them. Even with this letter. Number two. We'll go back to our chapter. The second thing Paul points to is his service. Verse 13, For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now Paul is not actually asking forgiveness. He's using irony here. It was not wrong for him not to burden them. And the way he didn't burden them was the way he supported himself. He worked with his hands. He built tents. And he received money from other churches. Now they're accusing Paul... The false teachers are accusing him because Paul is making them look bad. They are demanding money from the Corinthians. Paul, as a matter of policy, came into an area, founded a church, and initially he didn't receive support for the sake of the gospel. He didn't want it to look like he was doing this for the gospel. So he received from other churches or he supported himself. So he was not a burden to them. Now, it upset the Corinthian church in part because they wanted to be Paul's patrons out of pride. You know, we're the ones that take care of Paul. And that was just pride. So Paul uses irony like a mother may use irony towards a child that is accusing them of being inferior to the siblings. You know, you treat me different than them. Oh, really? Let's see. Is it the way I cook for you? I wash your clothes. I buy your clothes. I take you all over town to all kinds of activities. Oh, forgive me my wrong. And that's what Paul means here. So now Paul is going to talk again about his self-support because he was actually being accused and criticized because of it. So he says in verse 14 now, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. He's about to make a third trip. He's coming again. He's given time for his letter to take effect. He said, but the third time I'm coming, I'm still not going to be a burden. Why, Paul? For I seek not yours, or not what is yours, 
but I am seeking you. Because the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now Paul saw himself as a father to this church. It was through him that God converted them, and it was through him that God brought the new covenant ministry of the Spirit to them through Paul's ministry. So Paul saw himself as a parent. And the children don't provide for the parents. The parents provide for the children. And so Paul was seeing himself in this role of being a parent. So he wasn't burdening them, as I just stated, with demanding their provision like the false apostles did, but he was lifting the burden because of the sake of the gospel. But notice in verse 15, which is repeating something in verse 14, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. If I am to you like a parent, you should at least love me like you love your own parents. But although Paul was like that to them, the more he loved, the less he was loved. So what is Paul saying here? Paul not only continued to be steadfast, he continued to serve them. He was seeking them, which he interprets in verse 15 to mean, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. That service is that sacrificial service. Paul continued to serve them, and by that he demonstrated, it was all for you. My service, my seeking was not what you owned, it was not your possessions. I am after you, and to demonstrate that, I will spend and I will gladly be spent. The word spend in both cases is the same Greek word. He just adds the prefix ek to the second, second one, out of. So Paul is saying he has two bank accounts here in his way of serving the church. In the first bank account, he's got material resources. Whatever he owns wasn't much, whatever money he has... He says, very gladly, I'll spend it for you. That's service, isn't it? It's really the hallmark of Christian ministry of any kind. Not just apostolic ministry, pastoral ministry. It's church ministry, church service. At the very center of church service is service, right? That's how we minister to one another. So Paul says, gladly what I have, I'll spend that. I'll incur the cost. I will expend for you. But he has a second bank account. I will be spent. And in this bank account, it's not material resources, it's human resources. So in this bank account, Paul has deposited his energy, his time, his passions, his strength. And at the end of each day, Paul looks at his bank account and it's exhausted. And that's what the word means. To use up wholly and exhaust oneself. Paul said, can't you see that it's all for you? I have spent what I have, and I have spent myself. I have exhausted myself, and it was all for you. But, but what I want to talk about for a minute is how could Paul do that? Now, how could you do that? If this is kind of the hallmark of ministry, if this is kind of what we're supposed to be about, is serving, spending ourselves for one another, how is that possible? And of course, if you look at the text, Paul tells us, very gladly will he do that. 
You probably guessed that, I think, didn't you? Without this one Greek word, superlative, Paul doesn't spend anything, and he's certainly not going to spend himself for anyone but himself, unless he has gladness from some source. Unless you do too, your service is not going to be the kind of service Paul did. It's going to be what we often call self-service, right? Like that old gas station years ago. You kids don't even know anything about it, do you? You pull up to the gas station, and it wasn't self-service. That's the station today. There was an attendant that would come out to your car. And you just sat there, you had to roll the window down. It wasn't automatic, at least in the cars I remember. Roll it down. What can I do you? Fill it up. Wash the windshield. Now, you didn't command. This is what they did. They checked there on the tire, and you just sat there. And you paid the money to drive off. Now it's all self-service. That's not the kind of service you want to do in Christianity. It's fine as an attendant to wait on you at the gas station. That'd be good to have that again, but they got away from that. But what we don't want in Christian service is self-service. And what happens if your gladness is being drawn from the wrong direction, all that it means in your relationships, in church, in family, in marriage, everywhere, we're just being self-serving. Now let's think about that from what Jesus said to the apostles who were on that track in Mark chapter 10 where Brother Titus read from us for us this morning. They had this distorted view of leadership and serving other people. And it started with James and John. They were kind of, uh, they may have gone secretly to Jesus and said, you know, we'd like to sit on one, one on the right side, one on the left side. You know? In other words, we want to be great. <laughs> and Jesus said, that's not mine to, to give. It's, it's given for those for whom it is prepared. He said, now you will drink of the same cup that I drank from or drink from and be baptized with the same baptism because you're going to suffer too. And they did. But to sit on the right hand and the left, that's depending on whether you're a sheep or a goat. Then the ten were very displeased. Not because they thought the two were being proud because they wanted the same glory. They were very angry. Peter wanted it too. So Jesus turns to the twelve and he says this, You know, that those that are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship and they exercise authority over them. Lordship means to take dominion. Exercise authority means to wield power. The very thing Peter said elders are not to do in 1 Peter 5, 3 through 5. Feed the flock which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly. He gives three pairs of exhortations. How do you not do this eldership thing? Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Not as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Not by taking dominion and subjugating people. You be an example. Willingly, ready mind, example. Rather than force, because of gain, that produces lordship. So what are the apostles after? The gain of greatness. So Jesus turns greatness upside down and says this, It shall not be so among you. In other words, that's not the way you're going to be great, but I want you to be great. You want to be great, young man? Sure you do. You want to be great, young lady? Of course you do. Here is the greatness that Jesus wants for every one of you. He says this, Those that shall be great 
shall be a servant. Shall be your servant. And those that will be chief shall be a servant of all. You want to be great? Get down low and start serving. You'll be the greatest in the kingdom. Why did Jesus say that? Because even the Son of Man came not to be ministered or served, but to minister and to serve and to give His life a ransom for many people. Many. Two things about what Jesus is saying that will relate to Paul's service and why he was so glad about the service. One thing, how is Jesus going to turn these apostles, these apostles which were on the track to greatness by the wrong way of leadership, (laughs) subjugate people, had dominion because they wanted to look great. First, Jesus had to die to ransom them from this wrong thinking. Not only ransom them from the grave, from the penalty of sin, ransom them and transform them into the kind of apostles that were glad to suffer for the cause of Christ, that would be glad to serve and minister to people. At this moment in Mark 10, that was not going to make them glad at all. But Jesus went and ransomed them to transform the way they thought about serving. But secondly, Jesus is going to transform the way they approach Him and serve Him. Because Jesus said, you you, you really can't minister to me. You can't serve me. I didn't come to be served. So you can't serve Jesus. Say, wait a minute, Paul said over and over at the beginning of every epistle almost, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. But yet Jesus says, I didn't come for that reason. I didn't come for you to serve me. So there's a way in which Paul and the apostles being transformed and ransomed by the power of the cross, and we are ransomed and transformed the same way, that then you and I can approach Jesus in such a way that we're not serving Him, but we are serving Him. Which seems to make no sense. The way that we don't serve Him is that we don't come to Him bringing anything to contribute to who He is. You can't serve Him like that. What's the opposite? We come to Him to serve Him by bringing something to Him that we receive from Him. And I would illustrate with the question, how do you serve a fountain that never runs dry? How do you serve a restaurant with an endless supply of food? It just goes on and on to infinity. You bring your thirst and you bring your hunger and you receive it freely in Christ Jesus. And through that reception, you get really glad about an infinite supply of a clear, flowing fountain gushing up, Jesus says, into everlasting life. When you come to that fountain that flows freely, then and only then through Christ, can you be glad serving other people, even when they're difficult like Paul did. Now what's the counter to that? If, if the, the apostles are not ransomed, how do they go into Christian service? In lordship, looking for the gain of glory, they force people and they make people serve them. Because their gladness is in people being their fountain and their restaurant. And if you expect people to be your fountain, you're going to subjugate them in marriage, you're going to demand things from them, you're going to force them because you've got to be my fountain. And if you don't make me glad, 
I'm going somewhere else. I'm not going to endure this difficult marriage. I'm not going to endure this difficult person. And I'm certainly not going to endure this difficult church and pastor. Now, if he's difficult, he may need to be rebuked lovingly. But you get the point. The way we serve Jesus means everything. So if we serve him by faith, we're coming to Jesus to receive all that he is. And out of the strength and the joy and the gladness that Paul was receiving, what does he do? He's steadfast and he spends everything in the cause of Christ because Christ is supplying everything that he spends. Without that relationship, Paul is drawing in everything and making everybody else spend on his behalf. Is that the way it is with you, beloved? Are you demanding every person in your relationship to be your fountain? You've got to make me happy. You've got to be the source of my fulfillment. Surely relationships give us joy. But they can't be ultimate, can they? If we expect that, then there will be biting, devouring, quarreling, and every other kind of vice that destroys our relationships. Paul says, Beloved, do you think I'm, I'm doing this for a self-defense? I speak before God in Christ. We do all things for your edifying. It's for you that I very gladly will be spent because Christ has ransomed me. Christ is my supply. Christ is my help. Christ is the one That when I exhaust all my supply, he's there standing saying, do you think I'm out of supply, Paul? We're just getting started. And he fills Paul again with strength for the next day. And he does that for us, beloved. This is not an apostolic kind of elitism that only Paul could get this gladness. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to serve Christ and what it means to be ransomed by him. And you see this unpacking in the book of Acts when they very gladly received the word. They were baptized. About 3,000 souls were added. And what happened? They started being patient with each other. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. They just kept going because they were gladly receiving the word of Christ. And then there was need. Those that had lands and houses, extra, they sold them, put it in a pot, and distributed it. That was not by divine command. They just willingly did it because people were poor and people had lost their jobs. They couldn't go back to their homes as Jews. They were cut off from their families because they became Christians. So they gladly received the word and they started spending, spending and going out. And you see that unfolding throughout the book of Acts. Could that be something in our day? That we got to a place where someone saw a need, so I'll just sell that, brother, here. Unique situation, unique thing that happened, not a command, just simply the overflow of gladness in Christ. They just started incurring cost and they gave themselves to one another. Oh, that God would so produce gladness in us that we would see more of that. Certainly you have spent and you spend and thank God for it. But oh, that it would increase to the glory of God for the good of His people, and for our own spiritual joy and gladness in Christ. And now thirdly and lastly, Paul's fear and sorrow. Verse 20. 
For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall not be found unto you such as you would not, or I shall be found that way. So Paul says, the third time I'm coming, and I'm I'm fearful, and in verse 21 he says, "I, I may have to be well, which means to have sorrow over you. Because when I come, I may have to come in a way that I don't want to come. And I may have to come in a way that you would not want me to come. And first that means he would come with sorrow. See, when it's all for the sake of others, there is a time and place where there's great sorrow. What did Paul not want to find that he knew was probably still going on? In verse 20, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. Now if we just apply what we just said from Mark 10, what's going on here? They're demanding the service of others. You have got to be my fountain. That's why I'm so angry. That's why I'm so frustrated. That's why I'm envious. That's why I'm having strife. That's why I'm quarreling. That's why there's tumults. That's why I'm gossiping. That's why I'm whispering. Because you won't be my fountain. So how how is Paul doing this all for them? He's trying to restore their attachment to the fountain that never runs dry. And he's afraid. He has sorrow that the detachment may be permanent. And then in verse 21, Unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness and the sexual immorality. What is the solution for sexual immorality? Is there any hope for all in this building that have engaged in that? And there are many, I'm sure. And for all in the building that have done wrath and strife and quarreling. Is there any hope? Yes, the one word Paul uses is repentance. A change of mind that leads to a change of action and behavior. You know you've repented when you turn from the sin and you no longer have gladness in the sin. We can still sin, be sure. But does that make you glad? See, repentance is proof that when it's no longer making us glad... But we did it, and we turn in repentance to the Savior who loves us and gave Himself for us. You see, for Paul to use steadfastness and to spend in sacrificial service means that he is potentially going to incur great sorrow with great joy. Right? Listen to this word by Philip Brooks, who, writing on this passage, said it, it helps us grasp Paul's heart. To be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man. But no more can he be a man of unclothed gladness. To him shall come with ever deeper consecration a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that is beyond his power to feel before. And Paul said this, didn't he, in chapter 6? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
There was never a day that Paul didn't have sorrow, but it was mingled with joy. What will Paul do if he comes this way? He said in chapter 4 of the first epistle, Shall I come with a rod or in meekness? What's he going to do with a rod? It's a rod of discipline. And Paul tells us that in the next chapter. The loving thing for Paul to do, he is so working so that they would escape the judgment and wrath of God. Say, so wait a minute now, if you're, if you're in Christ, you've already escaped that. But what's your assurance of escaping the wrath of God that's to come? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 1. He is striving for this last remnant at Corinth. Many have repented, but there's still a group at Corinth that will not recognize his authority and his apostleship. And they're moving away from Paul's gospel unto another Jesus. Which really tells us why Paul waits so late to deal with these sins. I mean, why didn't he get that up front? That's pretty significant. Sexual immorality in the church. Because that's a symptom to a root. What's the root? They were turning to another Jesus away from Paul's gospel. So they were turning to a replacement Messiah, which means what? <clears throat> they had turned to another fountain of pseudo-joy, which would be no joy at all. And what it led to, when you expect another gospel to be your fountain, what does that produce? Sexual immorality, strife in your marriage, gossiping, anger, wrath, quarreling, debates. So in, in a real sense, we struggle with turning to another Jesus all the time, don't we? We come back to the fountain, which Paul was trying to lead them to through repentance. Paul's sorrow would be given way to joy. But at this point, he doesn't know until his third visit he's going to see if they had repented. And so it is with us, beloved. When we are in it for other people, or as Paul says, it's all for you then that will mean a kind of love that's willing to obey God and act in such a way that's for the good of the person who will not repent. The first epistle told us, he said, in in the Spirit, when you're gathered together and my Spirit is with you, to turn such an one over to to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of judgment. How is that going to happen? We turn them over to the destruction of the flesh outside the church and God acts to restore them back into fellowship with Him. Whether we know it, whether they come back to this church or the church they were in, God acts to cause the person to persevere on the pathway of holiness by bringing them back. Right? So Paul is willing to get out the rod of discipline, out of love, and experience the sorrow because that is for them also. And it's for us as well, beloved. See, when we take on the secular thinking of the world and we try to redefine God's love, we think, how is that love? How does that do any good? We are not pragmatists. We don't go to the Bible and say, well, if it'll do any good, then I'll do it. No, we obey what Jesus says. And I need to be reminded of that. Because it was sorrowful. Did Paul want to do this? <laughs> You could tell he's burdened. It's a dread. There's no joy. He's sorrowful. 
But he said, it was all for you. And even that is for us too, beloved. So, let's recap here. How did Paul demonstrate that his ministry and that everything he was saying in this letter was not merely a self-defense, it was a love defense. It was all for them. In the signs that were manifest among them and in his steadfastness for them, he didn't quit on them. God was still at work. And that was proven. In not only his signs and steadfastness, but his service. I will spend and be spent for you. And we see that throughout the pages of the New Testament. It wasn't confined to Corinth. He did that for every church. And then finally, in his sorrow, he was ready to do what he did not want to do. It didn't give him joy, but he was ready to come and deal with the church with apostolic authority. He didn't come a second, a third time initially to spare them. But now he says, I will not spare. And so, in sorrow. Let us model uh, the Apostle Paul as he followed Christ and as we seek to follow the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as we look at portions of Scripture that are not as common to us uh, as these latter chapters of this second epistle of the church at Corinth. We pray, apply these words to our souls so that we would be steadfast with one another, how we need to cultivate that spirit of patience. And remember, Lord, how patient and long-suffering you are with us. May we wake up each day and remind ourselves how slow to anger you are as a father. And even when you do chasten us, you are quick and restore fellowship uh, with repentance. And Lord, bless us. Not only to be steadfast, to be sacrificial in service. If we serve you, you have all the strength we need. You supply all that we need for service. Even the difficulties, the trials, you sustain us. And Lord, we know that we can be difficult with one another. Help us that we would be kind, but help us to be patient and forbearing. And then finally, Lord, help us in our sorrows, the deep sorrows we experience. The uncommitted soul does not know this sorrow because they're aloof to the body of Christ. But the person who's serving and involved will know the joys and the heights of joy, but will know the depths of sorrow because they're participating, they're committed to the body of Christ. Make this a reality in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.